You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. So Yahweh gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of Yahweh appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to Yahweh and said, O Lord, please let the man of God, whom you sent, come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, Please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of Yahweh said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to Yahweh. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of Yahweh. And Manoah said to the angel of Yahweh, What is your name, so that when your words come true we may honor you? And the angel of Yahweh said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to Yahweh, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of Yahweh went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of Yahweh appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife, Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of Yahweh. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If Yahweh had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and Yahweh blessed him. And the spirit of Yahweh began to stir him in Mahana Dan, between Zora and Eshtel.
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 709 of this podcast. Today is Sunday, September 10th, 2023. And that was a reading of Judges chapter 13 in the Old Testament. Weird stuff, right? Weird and wonderful. Very quirky, very odd. Sometimes what gets an extended treatment and what is just mentioned in passing, like, oh yeah, yeah, this guy had 30 sons and they rode on 30 donkeys. Well, anyway, (laughs) you know, the book of Judges is just a very eclectic collection of stories covering the period of time between Joshua helping, leading, guiding, setting an example for Israel, serving God after Moses dies, bringing Israel into the inheritance. The book of Judges is what happened between that and when you saw in the Old Testament in Israel, the rise of kings. So you have here the introduction to a certain judge, arguably the most famous of the judges, and the most interesting, the most surprising of the judges of this period, a man named Samson. And very little to nothing has been presented of his character yet, just that an angel, the angel actually, not any angel, but the angel of Yahweh, which I understand to be pre-incarnate God the Son in the Old Testament. Essentially, you have, if that's correct, Jesus appearing to Samson's parents, but really actually to his mom. And there's this weird reading between the lines, back and forth, maybe jockeying for position, interesting dynamic between Manoah, who is Samson's father, and Samson's mother, who is Samson's mother. What's her name? Her name is Samson's mom. Her her name is Manoah's wife. She doesn't get named. And yet she seems to be the one the angel of Yahweh is primarily interested in speaking with. And so she goes back and she tells her husband and her husband says, hey, if he shows up again, I want to talk with him. But what, right? But why? Why is this in here? is a question that I have, but also, why does he want to talk with the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord? Why does he want to speak with this messenger when his wife has already been told, and she told him, does he not believe his wife? Does he not believe that she is going to give him the whole story, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help her God? Is he feeling a little bit, oh, I don't know, undermined, slighted. You wouldn't dare say something like that because you're essentially saying that God has slighted you. God has disrespected you. Okay. Well, good luck with that dispute, man. You go ahead and take that up with God, but I'm going to stand well back. We're going to be back here behind cover. Nothing bad happens to Manoah, but a couple of curious things about this text, this chapter stand out to me. One is Manoah is the one named. He's a man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites. So that is the tribe of Dan in Israel. 
His name is Manoah. His wife has had no children to this point. She's barren. Why is she barren? I don't know, but she is. And here comes the angel of the Lord appearing to her and telling her, you're barren. Well, yeah. Yeah, I think she knows that. I think she knows that, Lord. But he says, behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful. Drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. Now, about that. Are we told this, that this is told to her because it's good for us to know that there was a certain aspect of the holiness and the set-apartness, the consecration of Samson, which pertained to even his being in the womb. Is that why we're told this? Are we told this because Manoah's wife, Samson's mom, this woman was in the habit of drinking wine and strong drink and eating unclean things? I don't know. You don't know. It's speculative. You have to read between the lines perhaps a little bit, but either way, both and are possibly the case at the same time. She would have drunk wine and strong drink and eaten unclean things while she was pregnant with Samson, if not for having been told to not to. But then again, she's not named. What's her name? Who cares? What does it matter? It's not beyond God to name notable women, say, for instance, Deborah and Jael. God's not opposed to naming notable women, whether they are worthy of honor or whether they are a cautionary tale. But this woman, Samson's mother, somehow gets the message directly. And then her husband, Manoah, is somewhat of an afterthought. And yet that's for God to know. And it's not pertinent. It's not really central to the story of Samson, what his mother's name was. It's very curious. It's a very curious thing and very mysterious in its way. Worth pondering. But you have Manoah asking some of the same questions that are already answered with what the angel of the Lord told to his wife. Maybe he just couldn't believe it. Ah, surely. You must be leaving something out. I, I don't understand. What are you talking about? Can I talk to this guy directly? I want to hear it from him. I'm sorry, but he's probably not sorry, right? So he asks, and note how the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, if you'll permit me, Christ, God the Son, the Messiah in the Old Testament, says, all that I commanded her, let her observe, which is, you know, if you're not the angel of the Lord, if you're not God the Son, What are you doing? Just showing up and commanding someone else's wife to do anything or to not do anything. Who do you think you are, right? All that I commanded her, let her observe. What's perhaps significant about this is that you don't have the angel of the Lord going to Manoah and telling Manoah, hey, tell your wife to do this, this, and this, and to not do this, this, and this. That's significant. Now, as an afterthought, yeah, Manoah, What I commanded your wife, let her do it. But that's to say, it's not really Manoah who needs to do much of anything in this case, except don't get between your wife and obeying God. She is going to give birth to a judge, the one who is going to 
in your day after 40 years, four decades of oppression at the hands of the Philistines, but it's actually just desserts. It's what they deserve for doing what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. After 40 years, your wife is going to give birth to the one who will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. What do you need to do? Just stay out of the way. Don't stop her. Now, she's not to, just so you know, she's not to drink wine or strong drink or eat anything from the vine. She's not to eat anything unclean. She may not. Let her be careful. Let her observe, which strongly implies that if you don't pressure her, if you don't try to get her to do what I'm telling her to not do, she will do what I'm telling her to do. I've given her commands. Don't try to get her to not do the things that I've commanded. Don't try to get her to do something that I told her not to do. That's a very, very interesting vignette. This is a very interesting little story because it gives us a picture of the relationship between husbands and wives at this time. And it also gives us a picture of the character of God in relation to not just men, but also women too. This is part of why it is Christianity, and yes, even those Jews who don't believe that Jesus is their Messiah, both alike influencing the course of Western civilization and the world by extension, have done a tremendous kindness to women all over the world. Now you say, oh, but Garrett, wait, 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 wait. The woman is not even named. We are, we're not even told her name. Yeah, but listen, okay, God knows her name. And for another thing, maybe the reason why we're not told her name is because that too tells us something of how women were being related to and treated at this time. 40 years of oppression at the hands of the Philistines. How do you think Israelite women are being treated? For that matter, when the men of Israel are feeling oppressed and they're feeling maybe even emasculated because they're living under the occupied rule of the Philistines, these godless people, because they or their forefathers were idolatrous and worshiped other gods. When the men of Israel are feeling oppressed, how do you think they are in turn relating to their wives? If they have a, if they have authority over their wives, how do you think they're relating to their wives? Well, they're probably passing it on. If they try to justify, minimize, downplay the way that they're being oppressed, they're probably also in turn relating to those under their own authority in a like manner. And I think this is a very self-evident, common sense observation that we can see in our own context. If someone grows up being treated very harshly, verbally abused, physically abused by parents, for instance, or by somebody in the neighborhood, for instance, it's not uncommon. If they don't break as a person and just avoid entirely having any authority, wielding any authority in life, if they get authority, it's all too common for them to wield authority in a like manner to how authority was wielded over them. Unless someone comes along and shows them a better way. Well, here you go. Judges chapter 13. Perhaps that's part of the reason why the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, pre-incarnate Christ, appears to Manoah's wife. And almost like when you hear about some archaeological find, some tomb or the ruins of a village 
in some obscure place in the world, when you hear about some archaeological find where they're digging and dusting things off and they're finding broken pieces of pottery with ornate designs, they're finding jewelry, they're finding weapons, and they're finding tools. Sometimes what they don't find is also as interesting as what they do find, but then what they do find, just because it helps you to understand how the pecking order worked itself out or who was important, who had high status, who had low status, that's all presented to you. And it doesn't necessarily mean, by the way, that the archaeologist who does the finding and explains these things or tries to piece them together is endorsing. But sometimes what you don't know is what draws you in. And would it be surprising if God leaves certain details out actually to create a negative space that draws us in on passages like this? I think that would be entirely like God. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to seek a matter out. And Jesus taught in parables. Do you actually want to understand? Well, then you'll try. And this becomes a kind of gatekeeping against the people who are just drive-by assessors. And they're going to say, yeah, whatever. And then you can know, hey, they don't actually care. They don't don't actually want to know. They don't actually want to understand. I don't have to take too seriously the kinds of things that they would say to summarize this stuff because they don't rightly handle their word of truth. They're not careful. They're not diligent. It's not a value. There's a lot here. I grant that you need to be careful with as you're trying to put the dots together, but we have to know that there is a reason. God has a purpose. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for what? Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete. That means part of the work of making us mature and complete in Christ must be seeing what I believe to be Christ in the Old Testament here in Judges 13, speaking to a woman, and that's all we're to know is that she's a woman in relation to her husband, she's his wife, Manoah's wife, and in relation to her son, she's Samson's mother. But enough about that for right now. We will be over the next, let's see, 14, 15, 16, three chapters. We will be going through the story of Samson. He is quite the character But for the purposes of this podcast episode, let's move on and stay tuned. I found a article over at Rolling Stone yesterday by Brenna Ehrlich. Stephen King knows anti-vaxxers are going to hate his latest book, Knock Yourself Out. The horror writer talks Holly and why he chose not to erase COVID from the detective's world. I won't read a whole lot of this interview back and forth between Stephen King and Brenna Ehrlich. But I will share with you a curious thing that caught my attention and that I find very disturbing. This is from September 5th, 2023. That is just this past week. But it says here that in order to get himself out of a writer's block or get himself into the right zone to write, Stephen King listens to Mambo Number no. 5 by Lou Bega, and actually, he says here, his wife threatened to divorce him. He played this song so often. He says, and I quote, I had the dance mix. I loved those extended play things, and I played both sides of it, and one of them was just total instrumental, and I played that thing until my wife just said, one more time, and I'm going to effing leave you, end quote. Now, you probably... 
I would guess, hear something like that and you say, oh, that's funny, right? You probably hear something like that and you're just like, eh, she was joking. Don't take it too seriously. But wait, right? But wait, why is this funny? I don't find it very funny at all. Isn't that kind of abusive? Isn't that pretty dark? Now you say, well, it's Stephen King. So he's thick-skinned and he does not exactly have a reputation for being the most sensitive soul. He writes the books, the novels that he does. He says the kinds of things that he does. He comes up with the stories that he does because he's all about jarring you out of a comfortability with the way things are. Here's this thing that you thought was safe and benign, and I'm going to horrify you by presenting it twisted in a sinister way, in a menacing sort of a way. And so people read his writing. They read his books. And here's his wife saying, if you play that song again, I'm going to leave you. I'm going to divorce you. So is that the only way to get through to a man like Stephen King? Is that the only way his wife can get through to him? She can't just ask nicely? And he would listen and he would say, okay, sure. Is this just their dark sense of humor that they say these kinds of things? I don't know, right? I don't know, but it bothers me, right? It bothers me. I find it concerning all the more rather than less because when men say these kinds of things to women, it's regarded as abusive. When a woman says this kind of a thing to a man, we chuckle about it. We say, oh yeah, she sure showed him who's boss. But wait a second, wait, wait, wait. Isn't that upside down and inside out and backwards? Not that men should be saying, if you play that song again, I'm going to divorce you. I'm going to put you away. Not that men should be doing that to women either. But insofar as we read in the biblical text that the man is the head, Adam was made first, then Eve. Eve was made to be a helpmeet suitable for Adam, both alike being created in God's image, male and female, he created them. There's an equalizing aspect to how they're made. And then there's also an authoritative aspect. Not for no reason in the New Testament do we see the wife being told to submit to her husband in everything as unto the Lord. And we see the man being told to love his wife as Christ loved the church. A lot of us are uncomfortable with the authority aspect of that. And a lot of us have embraced very egalitarian ways of relating in marriage or thinking about other people's marriages. And how we think about other people's marriages can really set the tone for how we orient our own marriage. So think carefully. Yes, this is Stephen King's marriage. It's not my marriage. It's not your marriage. I trust, unless Stephen King, you're listening, which I doubt. But it's still important because this is out there in the public eye. Rolling Stone magazine has at least a a few readers. I mean, there are some people who read this who love Stephen King and they want to see what the latest is. They want to know, hey, what's going on behind the scenes when you're writing the next great novel that I want to read. So this is being presented as something instructive or exemplary or even just from the standpoint of don't take it so seriously. You're being taught something. You're being told this is no big deal, right? Don't take it so seriously might be the advice, actually. That might be part of the reason why this is presented is so that you would object and then somebody would say, yeah, come on. And for another example of this same mechanic from Rolling Stone as well, Larisha Paul has a piece up filed under the show must go on 
Miley Cyrus decided to divorce Liam Hemsworth moments before Glastonbury performance. And here's a quote at the very top. You don't even have to scroll down into the body of the content. The work, the performance, the character came first, Cyrus explained. Quote, and I guess that's why it's now so important to me for that to not be the case that the human comes first, end quote. Here is Miley Cyrus, tatted up, wearing all kinds of jewelry, hair a mess, looking defiant, looking aggressive. I am woman, hear me roar. If you ask me, looking rather sad. I feel a kind of sadness for her. Why do we need to know this? And also, why is this the case? Why do I need to know that Miley Cyrus decided to divorce Liam Hemsworth moments before going out on stage at Glastonbury? Is this life imitating art? Is this art trying to tell us how to live? Is it both end? I have so many questions, but really, more than my questions, I just am sad that this is no big deal to a lot of people. And that is, I think, actually a large part of the reason why these kinds of things are presented. On the one hand, you're told this person is hurting and they're going through this trying time. But then on the other hand, there's a desensitization that happens because here's this young person who got divorced, broke up, separated, went separate ways, put their career first, put performing for fans and a loyalty to essentially making money and being famous ahead of a decades long what have you. Here's somebody who, in the case of Stephen King's wife, threatened to leave him if he played a certain song that was getting on her nerves one more time. But then Why is he playing that song over and over and over again and getting on her nerves? Is he considering his wife? These are all kinds of questions that you're not supposed to consider important. You're supposed to just find it important that this person took control, made a decision. They prioritized themselves and self-actualization. And it's sad. I have questions. I have things that I wonder about it. I could speculate, but one thing is not speculative that this is sad. It's unfortunate, and it doesn't need to be this way, and it's not supposed to be this way. And don't look at things like this happening in the lives of the people around you, the people on TV, the people on your smartphone screen or computer screen. Don't look at these sorts of things happening and being typical, normative, casual as some kind of proof that it's no big deal. Yeah, maybe a lot of people are acting this way, or this is a common attitude. That doesn't make it no big deal. That doesn't mean that it's not destructive. That doesn't mean that we should shrug. Going back to Judges chapter 13 for a moment, it was typical for 40 years that the Philistines just did whatever they wanted to the people of Israel. It was typical. It was normal. That doesn't mean that it was ideal or what we should aspire to. And yet, I would say it's probably a lot closer to our current reality than many of us want to admit or can even accept. The pop culture influences and their attitudes in a lot of cases have a lot in common, are very similar to the attitudes that would have been common to the Philistines. And for Christians, even accepting, yes, we are not Israel, Israel was a type or 
a foreshadowing for the church. So you could say Israel wasn't the church just as easily as you could say that the church or Christians in America are not Israel. It's not the point. The point is God is God. And the point is that there's always this tension. There's always this contrast and a conflict that we don't start, but it's there. It's aggressively in our face. This conflict between two different modes of life. One, which says God knows best and his ways are best. And in his ways, we will find a blessing and life. We'll find good outcomes. And on the other hand, you have the worship of any other God. Like what I mean is you want to worship literally any God other than Yahweh. As in, you don't care really particularly who you worship or who someone else worships. So long as we're not talking worship of Yahweh God, you just know that you don't want to worship Yahweh God. You know that you don't like his ways. You don't like his commands. You don't like what he tells you to do and to not do. You don't like that being the top priority. And so you'll do anything. You'll say anything to try and prove that you are not under his authority. You're trying to prove it to yourself and convince yourself that you're not accountable to him, that he is not Lord of all creation, that the earth is not his and the fullness thereof, that the world is not his and all its inhabitants. So there's always going to be this tension. On the one hand, wherever God's people or the people who are trying to serve God, trust God, obey God, are to be found, there's always going to be a tension between them and those who are hostile to God, who are at enmity with God. Now, what can help you to see that sometimes is persecution. Now, what I'm not saying is that Miley Cyrus casually and very self-indulgently explaining her separation from Liam Hemsworth, divorce from Liam Hemsworth, I'm not saying that her talking casually about that with Rolling Stone is me being persecuted. But my point is, very often what you can find is persecution when the second comes to examine the first who stated his case. If the second who comes to examine the first to state his case happens to be one of God's people who cares about that lost person, lost soul, and is sad for them, and is maybe even concerned for people they're hurting or that they're leading astray. If God's person, God's man, God's woman says, well, wait a second, is that good? Is that true? When a culture fully gives itself over in the mainstream to trying to break God's bounds asunder, trying to assert independence or liberate itself and its members from the commands of God or from the promises of God or from the character of God, from the purposes of God for us. When that happens and everybody does what's right in their own eyes, the one who comes to cross-examine will find themselves being punished and not just hated in an abstract way, but they'll find themselves being excluded or penalized, maybe even not just verbally abused, maybe even physically abused. And if the physical abuse and the verbal abuse and the boxing out does not suffice to silence the dissent, that's when you start getting into mortal danger, mortal peril for the one who would say, well, wait a second. Is that good? Is that true? Sometimes it's enough just for you to be a Christian and to be living in a God-honoring way in proximity to those who 
don't want the reminder. The reason it upsets them, even just for you to be present, and they have to mock you, they have to tear you down, they have to scoff at you, is because if they didn't, even just your mode of life, even just your way of relating, your way of treating people and making decisions and carrying yourself would be enough to bring some conviction. So some think when that's the circumstance, when it is the case that there's a growing hostility to not Christians, but Christ, ultimately, Christians should probably just keep our heads down. But then you know what that ends up being, right? It's not just that you be careful what you say to whom and how. It's that you make a point to perhaps not be certain places at all because they're going to identify you. They're going to sense that you are not with them and you don't affirm, you don't approve what they do. And that's part of judgment. That's part of the judgment that people can be under, that God does give them over to a reprobate mind. He's not anxious about it. He's not worried. You're not harming him. But if he just gives you over to being oppressed, to unreasonableness, and there's no one to deliver you for 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 80 years, just know, just know that it didn't have to be that way. You chose that. And for God's people, at a certain point, that'll be all, that'll be a wrap, and then comes the judgment. But we don't know the day or the hour, and so we should anticipate and we should prepare ourselves to be compassionate to those when they are willing to ask questions and they come to the end of their rope or the end of the road, they come to the dead end. If they admit that they are truly lost and they want some advice, some counsel, someone to pray for them, someone to share the good news with them, to share Christ with them, we should be prepared to have an answer for the reason of the hope that is in us with gentleness and respect. Because such were we also. We were in the same boat. But for the grace of God, there go we also. Switching gears, but not really. I got to thinking over the last couple of days, and I asked my wife, I said, you just get the feeling that a lot of people are under a kind of malaise right now. I feel blah, but I think part of the reason I'm feeling blah is because I'm getting a very blah vibe. Meh. Malaise is a good word for this vibe. And she said, yeah, I'm getting it too from a lot of people. I send people texts and I get no response for weeks, if ever. I talk with somebody and yeah, they're cheerful, but then there's a sadness behind the eyes. There's a sadness behind the smile. Unspoken, if you're not looking for it, if you're not willing to look for it, maybe you won't diagnose it. But what's driving that? What's causing that? Well, first, let's talk about what malaise is. Malaise comes from the French. It's a mid-18th century word. And the usage over time, interestingly enough, according to the mentions graph embedded in the Oxford Languages entry at the top of the page when I Google this, Around about 1850, you start to see this word used more and more. There's a rise until maybe 1870-ish, and then a leveling off through 1900 on into the mid-1920s, 1930s. 
you see a slight dip. And then around about 1940, you see it increase. You see it going up that people are using this word malaise. There are more and more mentions of it. 1950, we see a slight decline in the rate of increase, which is not to say that there's a decrease, but just the rate of increase slows. But then there's an uptick in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. We start to see a leveling off again, but it's still much higher. There's a lot more use of this term malaise compared to 1950. Maybe not quite three times as much, but there's definitely double. And then 2019 is the last date on the graph. And 2019, we see a little bit of a dip usage of this term declines, but it's still compared with 1900 or 1920, something like three times as much, something maybe four times as much as what it had been. This use of the word malaise. What is malaise? It comes from the old French. Like I said, mal means bad from Latin, malice. And then ease means ease, bad ease or ill at ease, you might say. A general feeling of discomfort, illness, or uneasiness whose exact cause is difficult to identify. That's a good word to describe the vibe a lot of people are giving off. And it seems as though, just anecdotally, just in my circle of friends, family, co-workers, people I observe in general society, it seems as though it's a kind of emotional nausea. Like we've eaten something that doesn't agree with us. We've observed, we've watched, we've heard something that makes us sick in the soul in the heart, in the mind, something is not all right. Something is not okay. But what is it, right? What did I eat? If you've ever had nausea and a stomach bug, what do you do? You think about what you've eaten recently, who you've been around, right? Was that dish undercooked? Were some of the ingredients maybe left out on the counter? And this is bacteria that my body is warning me I do not want, and I should probably expel post-haste. Have I been around somebody who I just found out after I was around them, got sick? Maybe I caught it from them. What if some of the malaise I'm picking up on, what if some of that is actually because of current events, how they're being presented, what's in the news, but more to the point, what's happening that for one, we're finding out about. But then for another thing, even just in the way that the news is coming to us, we have this general sense of unease because we don't know if we're being actually told what's happening or if these are all things that are being manipulated. We ourselves are being manipulated by what is being told to us and not told to us, how things are being told to us, how adjectives are being used to modify our perception of things that are happening, things that are being done and not done, to whom by whom, and to what end. When I get to feeling nauseous or sick to my stomach, my wife, who is into homeopathy, she'll offer me activated charcoal. And activated charcoal is said to help absorb unpleasant things in the body, kind of like a sponge. And then your body has an easier time getting rid of those things without being sick for longer in a more drastic way, in a more debilitating way. 
I hope, <laughs> my friends, family, friends, Romans, countrymen, I hope that as we're talking about Judges chapter 13, when we're talking about biblical truth generally, I hope that I'm giving you not a stomach ache, but some activated charcoal here, something that's going to absorb these toxins and help you to not have as debilitating an effect of the things that are making us sick, things that are happening around us, being said, being done, not being said, not being done, that are making us ill at ease. But speaking of, one of the things that may be putting us ill at ease is insecurity, uncertainty as to where our energy is coming from, where it's going to come from, how are we going to transport ourselves How are we going to electrify our homes and our businesses and our towns and our cities? How are we going to keep the lights on? And how are we going to get from point A to point B? That's one of the big questions as there's so much buzz about switching our power grid over to renewable energy and at the same time, forcing people really to not buy internal combustion engine vehicles that run on gasoline and diesel forcing people to use electric vehicles, which will then have to be charged on the power grid from renewable sources, from solar panels, wind, hydro, maybe nuclear, maybe, but uh, the environmentalists are not keen on nuclear, it seems. There's an article I came across actually from September 6th, 2023, this year, by Francis Menton over at the Manhattan Contrarian. The elites directing the energy transition really have no idea what they're doing. That's what the title of this piece is. You can read the full thing for yourself, but I'll read a selection for you from it. Menton writes, We are on our way to net zero by 2050. It must be true because everybody says so. The entire six-plus trillion dollars per year federal government is committed to the project, which obviously would not be the case if the whole thing were impossible. Equally fully committed are essentially all of the colleges and universities where all of the smartest people are to be found, as well as every other elite institution of every kind and sort, take the World Economic Forum. If there is a number one elitist among all elite institutions, this has to be it. At their annual confab in Davos, Switzerland, they gather the greatest of geniuses to instruct the very top government and business leaders how to run the world. Would you like to go? It will cost you $52,000 to join the organization and then an additional $19,000 to attend the conference. Chartering a private jet to get you there will cost a few more thousand. Once there, you can hear the very smartest people imparting their thoughts on the most important topics of the day, like the Great Reset emerging technologies, diversity and inclusions, and of course, the net zero transition. Is it possible that these people are completely incompetent and have no idea what they are doing? A reader has sent me the very latest from the WEF on how the world is going to get to net zero. The piece has a date of September 5th, 2023, and is titled, How Battery Energy Storage Can Power Us to Net Zero. The authors are three people from the World Bank, with the lead author being one Amit Jain, who is the bank's energy storage program lead. This is the guy on the receiving end of tens of billions of dollars of government money to pass out to make the energy transition happen throughout the developing world. Now, it so happens that energy storage is something I know 
a little about, and in particular about the problem of trying to store enough energy to make an electrical grid work without full dispatchable backup. See my energy storage report dated December 1st, 2022 at this link. So let's take a look at Jane at all's take on how battery storage will power us to net zero. First, some excited, happy talk. Quote, across the globe, power systems are experiencing a period of unprecedented change. Low-cost, renewable electricity is spreading, and there is a growing urgency to boost power systems, resilience, and enhance digitalization. This requires stockpiling renewable energy on a massive scale, notably in developing countries, which makes energy storage fundamental. Making energy storage systems mainstream in the developing world will be a game-changer. Deploying battery energy storage systems will provide more comprehensive access to electricity while enabling much greater use of renewable energy, ultimately helping the world meet its net zero decarbonization targets. International organizations and development institutions are leading the way forward to enable this decarbonization. Dot, dot, dot. So, okay, Amit, how much storage are we talking about here? Quote, in 2022... Approximately 192 gigawatts of solar and 75 gigawatts of wind were installed globally. However, only 16 gigawatts, 35 gigawatt hours of new storage systems were deployed. A recent International Energy Agency analysis finds that although battery energy storage systems have seen strong growth in recent years, grid scale storage capacity still needs to be scaled up to reach net zero emissions by 2050 to meet Our net zero ambitions of 2050, annual additions of grid scale, battery energy storage globally must rise to an average of 80 gigawatts annually between now and 2030. Holy underwear, Batman. Could this guy really not even know what units he's talking about? Thinking his readers might not understand the abbreviation gigawatt hours, he helpfully defines it as gigawatts per hour. Could he really be this clueless? And he had two co-authors to check him? And then there's the statement that to meet the 2050 net zero ambition, annual deployments of grid-scale batteries, quote, must rise to an average of 80 gigawatts annually, end quote. Of course, he is using the wrong units and undoubtedly does not know that. But let's give him the benefit of the doubt and assume that he is talking about the standard batteries available today, which are four-hour batteries, meaning that 80 gigawatts would provide 320 gigawatt hours of storage. If the world would add that much capacity every year from now to 2050, that would come to 8,960 gigawatt hours of storage. Now have Mr. Jane et al. come to the conclusion that this 8,960 gigawatt hours of storage will be enough to meet our net zero ambitions of 2050. This piece contains no quantitative analysis or backup of any kind to support the proposition that this amount of storage would be sufficient. My own energy storage report does contain backup and calculations, although only for certain countries rather than for the whole world. For example, for the United States, the figures cited in my report are that it would take some 233,000 gigawatt hours of battery storage to fully back up the electrical grid, assuming current levels and patterns of usage. Since the U.S. is about 4% of world population, we can multiply that figure by 25 to get the storage requirement for the world, assuming that the world electrifies to the U.S. level by 2050, the total would be 5,825,000 gigawatt hours. In other words, Jane et al. are off by a factor of about 650, give or take maybe a few hundred. 
But it's okay because Jane and his colleagues have no skin in this game. They just babble some happy talk to get their hands on a few hundred billions of money from rich governments and pass it out to build impressive looking battery projects that are actually next to useless to provide reliable grid electricity. They can be very confident that no one in their circles will ever check the math to see if the numbers add up. When 2050 rolls around and the whole thing doesn't work, they will be long retired on generous pensions. Now, let's just stop right there. And I will admit, let me confess, I said I would read a selection for you. I read the whole thing. Ah, My bad. There you go. But you can read it. You can cite this. You can check out the links in Francis Menton's Manhattan Contrarian article for yourself if you want. For the purposes of what I was just saying previously about malaise, though, it is concerning. If maybe we'll have one 650th, give or take a few hundred, (laughs) if we'll have one 650th of the capacity and the rest is just supposed to be compensated for by what? Wish casting? Thoughts and prayers? Good intentions? Reduction of population? Dare I say? Could be. Some of what they're expecting, some of what they're anticipating. But that notwithstanding, let's just take the least controversial view, which I would say, to Menton's credit, he is articulating here. These people don't know, and they're not challenged, and they're not going to be contradicted by the people in a position to make these decisions, the people who have put themselves forward as the ones to make these decisions at a global level. None of those folks are going to say, hey, wait a second, this is woefully inadequate. This is not going to do even a thousandth, perhaps, of what you're expecting. Your math is all wrong, and throwing all the money in the world at it isn't going to change that fact. You're going to have to have something more than just money thrown at it. Why would nobody double check this? And actually, why would the people who are writing and publishing this sort of a thing with billions of human beings, men, women, and children around the world, their lives hanging in the balance, their livelihoods, their industry, their home economies, their communities being stable and sustainable, their families being stable and sustainable, all hanging in the balance. Why would the people who write these things and publish these kinds of things not be more careful in doing the math and in projecting and in requiring and mandating and demanding and investing quite simply because they don't have skin in the game like you and I do. Now, on the one hand, the malaise sets in, I think, the unease that we don't quite know where it's coming from, what's driving it. I think that sets in because we feel much more is at stake and that we have much less capacity ourselves politically, socially, economically to do anything about it. The cost to us is much higher. The risk to us is much higher than it is to somebody who is already off the grid. They have a big expensive home that's already paid for in a remote part of the world far enough removed from major population centers that if it does all go to hell in a handbasket, they'll keep the lights on in their private mansion off the grid. And maybe that's part of what's being done with this money, that we don't need so much more capacity than what they're anticipating they will deliver to us. Because 
they'll have enough capacity for themselves. Well, there's just one problem. There's a massive fraud that's being perpetrated. If you're collecting money from the whole world, from all the wealthiest governments of the world, to fund these super projects, arguably the most ambitious projects in world history, and if you're only padding your own nest, you start with that because, well, you know, we wouldn't want somebody criticizing us that we're not being carbon neutral ourselves. We're going to try it first and make sure that we're off the grid. And if there's not enough money and innovation and raw materials and will to get everybody else to that place, and if the whole thing falls apart because we said you can't use oil and gas and coal, and we don't like nuclear, well, oh well, that's unfortunate. But when you realize... (laughs) When you realize that the risk is much greater for us because we're not the ones making sure that our own nest is padded and also that a lot of these things being decided far away in Switzerland where it would take probably more than your household income in the course of a year even just to show up, much less would anybody listen to you, would anybody hear you just to show up, just to be a part of the organization and to attend the conference. When you realize that, It feels as though somebody is taking their ball and going home. And yet what you're told is if you double check the math and you don't come out to the same supremely confident assessment that this is going to solve all our problems and save the world by 2050, it's because you didn't get a good education like these people did. It's because you don't have access to the resources. Well, wait a second. Maybe the reason you guys came to these conclusions is because You didn't get an education so much as induction into a cult, a neo-pagan cult, you who make these decisions. Maybe our sense of malaise is the growing suspicion that you folks don't particularly care whether we live or die, most of us. If you think there are billions and billions too many people and the wrong sort of people, and you have just tuned us out when we say, wait, 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 wait a second. Where am I going to live? What am I going to drive? How am I going to keep the lights on? <laughs> How is my family going to eat? Wait, wait, wait. What do you mean? What do you mean that's not something I should be concerned about? It leads to a growing sense that, hey, wait a second. Maybe you guys are just extracting and stockpiling all the wealth in the world and you're setting the rest of us up either knowingly or apathetically for a premature conclusion to our part of the human story. Again, going back to your induction into a neo-pagan, earth-worshipping cult. It is interesting that a lot of the same people who are all about carbon neutrality, getting off of fossil fuels, decarbonizing our electrical grid and our transportation networks, those same kinds of people have for a long time been saying, we need to have a lot fewer people on planet Earth. Because as Alex Epstein quotes their own philosophers, their own poets in The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, the goal is not just to have less of a carbon footprint. The goal is to have fewer footprints generally. And this has been a known and public goal of this class of people for over a century now. There is a open contempt for poor people, those who are regarded as the germplasm, of society, malgenic people reproducing after themselves, filling up the earth and subduing it. There's a certain contempt for 
that on the part of these very wealthy and very arrogant folks. And maybe that's part of the reason why the numbers don't add up because they don't expect you to double check their math. And even if you did, even if you do, like Francis Menton did, they don't expect you to be able to do anything about it when you realize that the math doesn't add up. You know, it's almost like in a movie, here's how I would describe it. In a movie, the engines of the plane start going out and the passengers are a little concerned because the pilot seems to be unresponsive. He seems to be unconscious or dead. Somebody knocked him out. And it it seems as though this plane maybe is not traveling from point A to point B like we were told it was going to when we got on board. And here is somebody looking very unaffected, very above all of us, very cold, strapping on a parachute. And we start to ask, hey, what's up with the parachute? Is everything all right? And we're met with silence. Yeah. You know what? That <laughs> that happening in a lot of ways in recent years and us being told, hey, this is just the beginning. We're onward and upward. At a certain point, it does create a sense of bad ease, malaise. It does put people ill at ease when you're in a plane and you think you're all going to the same place. And hey, wait a second. Why are you putting on a parachute? And why is the pilot slumped over? And why are the engines on fire? And (laughs) hey, wait a second. Why are you throwing the parachutes out the door? Where are you going? This is not to get carried away, something we need to grapple with. It's something we need to figure out. And I would dare say this is part of the reason why these kinds of decisions need to be handled at the most local level possible. When people can fly off to Davos, Switzerland and make all these decisions out of sight, out of mind, out of earshot of we who are going to be without a parachute if the plane goes down, this should drive us to want more local decision-making. And that's going to be a difficult thing to pry away from or to argue for. It's going to be a messy thing for us to argue for and get anywhere about it. But we have to try. We have to make an effort. When the decision is made in your country, it still might be challenging for you to get to the place where the decision-making is happening. If I were to move to Washington, D.C., that would be one thing. And then maybe I'd just come into work a little later that day. Maybe I take off a little earlier that day so I can make the hearing and hear for myself what's being discussed, what's being contemplated. But then what if the decision is being made in Denver and I live in Greeley? Well, that still can be a bit challenging. Yep. But then what if the decision is being made in Greeley and I live in Greeley? What if all I've got to do is drive across town some night next week or the week after. And here are the people who make this decision. And I can talk with them and I can ask them if the math works out, that we're all going to have electricity. We're all going to be able to fuel up our vehicles. We're all going to be able to buy food at the grocery store and keep our lights on. I can ask them face to face. And then if their answers consistently are to just stare at me, unblinking, unfazed, and to move on to the next order of business, I can talk with my fellow citizens and say, you know, I think we need better representation. That's a lot more challenging to do when the decision-making is happening in Washington, D.C., and 
it's exponentially more difficult when the decision-making is happening in Davos or Brussels. So perhaps, just possibly, we need to know what we are doing and not always say they are doing something. No, no, we need to know what we are doing. This is one of the big points that Solzhenitsyn makes in Live Not By Lies, the essay he wrote, which immediately preceded his being exiled from the Soviet Union. We always say it's they. We always say it's them. We're always critical of them quietly behind the scenes. So no one will hear who doesn't already agree. Therefore, we're not persuading anybody. We risk nothing. It's always they and it's always them. But then we lie when they tell us to lie. And therefore, we keep these machinations propped up. One of Jordan Peterson's rules for life, his 12 rules for life was a big hit here in the last decade. One of his rules is predicated on Solzhenitsyn's motto, live not by lies. He says, tell the truth, or at least don't lie. We need to practice telling the truth and listening when those around us are telling the truth if we are going to make decisions together, which is all politics is. It's the process of making decisions together. If we are going to be reasonable, that should be evident by how we relate to each other. If you're always avoiding conversations, then maybe you prefer your own way and maybe you're selfish and maybe you hate politics because you don't like to share and you don't like to listen to other people because you're arrogant, because you're selfish. Ooh, ouch, ouch. Maybe that's why in part we live under oppression because like in the book of Judges, there is no king in Israel and so every man does what is right in his own eyes. But we simultaneously, not coincidentally, again, do what is evil in the sight of Yahweh. And what happens in the book of Judges when Israel does what is right in their own eyes, every man, but what is evil in the sight of Yahweh, God gives them over to, say, for instance, in the run-up to Samson being born for 40 years, four decades, God gives Israel over to being oppressed by the Philistines. Yeah, and I'll bet if the Philistines started up community schools and said, all the Israelites have to send their kids to Philistine schools. I'll bet that's exactly what the Israelites did until Samson came along. Samson was not a perfect man morally. His character was not exactly what you would tell your sons to emulate in so many ways. And yet God used Samson and God can use those who submit themselves to him in obedience, in faithfulness. In fact, all God ever works with in the biblical story, with the exception of Jesus Christ himself, all God ever works with is imperfect vessels, flawed men. Maybe our malaise is that we have swallowed some untrue things and they've made us sick. And now we're sick to our stomach because not only did we swallow some untruths, but now that we have some work to do, we're curled up on the floor trying not to throw up. Maybe it's time to just throw up already. Maybe it's time to take some activated charcoal. It might take a minute, might take a little bit, but if God would begin to deliver us as a people from our oppressors, even that would be a great comfort. And I think it would go a long ways to putting us back into a peaceable state, first with him and then subsequently 
with one another. And this would be very good. This is a good thing for us to want. Moving on. Carson Holloway published a piece the day before America's birthday this year at thepublicdiscourse.com. This is the journal of the Witherspoon Institute. Good for eating cold cereal and ice cream. Much better than the Witherspoon Institute. Much more tidy and civilized, of course. The patriotism we need, principled and spirited. Carson Holloway writes, A timely book on the thought of Harry Jaffa and Walter Burns reminds us that patriotism needs to be about ideas and principles, but it cannot be only about ideas and principles. To win, and deserve to win, elections, conservatism, must also inspire love of country and serve the immediate interests of the ordinary man. Moving on down to the body of this work. The presidency of Donald Trump raises the question of patriotism more forcefully than it has been raised for a long time in American politics. On the one hand, Trump and his followers think of their movement as a restoration of proper patriotism, an effort to rescue a country and a people, the true interests of which have been shamefully neglected by an excessively cosmopolitan elite. On the other hand, Trump's critics think that he appeals to a dangerously atavistic nationalism, an unenlightened and extreme love of country that neglects our duties to the world community. Thus, the Trump movement and the controversy it has created force us to ask, what is it just and reasonable patriotism? More specifically, what kind of patriotism is appropriate to a country like America, which is founded on universal principles and not on any particular and exclusive ethnic or religious identity? This question is especially relevant for American conservatives in general, Patriotism looms larger in the minds of conservatives than in the minds of their liberal counterparts. Conservatism is about preserving, as much as circumstances permit, the country we have inherited. And such an enterprise necessarily presupposes patriotism, a loving approval of that country's way of life and a desire to see it safely extended into the future. This is not to say that American liberals are unpatriotic. It is just that their patriotism is rendered more complicated and perhaps more qualified by their commitment to progress, which necessarily entails a belief that the country is imperfect and hence more in need of improvement than of preservation, and by their commitment to cosmopolitanism, which leads them to think in terms of political obligations aside from, and maybe in some cases more compelling than, those they owe to their country. Now, we'll just pause right there and ponder for a moment. What is indisputable in this whole business is that I, as a husband, am commanded by God Almighty to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I am commanded to provide for the needs of my family, especially the members of my household. But that is to say, I am commanded to care about how my extended family is doing materially. That means if they are homeless. That means if they are hungry. That means if they're naked, that means if they're in danger, I am told in the word of God, in the New Testament, if I as a man do not provide for those needs, I am worse than an unbeliever. So that is to say that you can say you've got good doctrine. You can say you've got a good theology of whatever. And if it's all just in your head, and if it doesn't translate into providing for the needs of your family, First, 
especially the needs of your household, first, then you don't actually believe these things. You just like to look like you think these things are correct, but you don't actually believe them because you're not living like it. If you really believe sound doctrine, you will live like it. You will act like it. Well, then, what does that have to do with patriotism? At least this, as I see it. If I love my neighbor as I love myself, who is my neighbor? In my own household, my closest neighbors are my wife, my children. That's easy. How about outside of my household? There's a house across the street. There's a house to the south of us, to the north of us. There's a house behind our house. So those are my neighbors. How about two houses down? This article, by the way, sent to me by my neighbor, two houses down, J.P. Chavez, who also is a fellow Christian, who also is a fellow member of the church we are members of. Do I love my neighbor as I love myself? Do I love the household of faith in my local church? Do I love the broader body of Christ in Greeley, Colorado, in Northern Colorado, in the state of Colorado, in the Rocky Mountains region, across the U.S. Well, wait a second. Now we're starting to talk about something political. Wait, what are you doing? Don't talk about politics. Okay, let's take a step back. Think about the Pauline epistles. What do we call them? Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Thessalonians, Colossians. Why are they called by these names? Because the church was in a particular place. Now, we're reading those epistles, and we derive a benefit, no doubt about it. But when Paul wrote the letter to the Romans, he was writing to Christians in Rome, in a particular place. And what he had to say to the Christians in Rome was distinct, not contradictory to, but distinct from what he wrote to Christians in Galatia or in Colossae or in Philippi or in Thessalonica. He wrote a different letter when he was writing to the Christians in a particular place at a particular time. And we read all of the above and that's fine. But that's a distinction between the local church and the universal church, similar to the distinction between loving your neighbor in a general sense and loving your neighbor specifically, a specific neighbor in a specific circumstance where they are in need, or you can just serve them well, do unto them as you would have others do unto you. I can say that I love my family in an abstract sense, but when the rubber meets the road, am I loving my wife specifically? Am I paying attention to the needs of my children specifically? We come to this question of patriotism and loving one's own country, and it seems to me as though you start from the premise that it's appropriate for you to love your family. It's appropriate for you to provide for the needs of your family, especially, but not only, the needs of your own household. You start from the premise that it's appropriate for you to love your neighbor and you say, okay, I've got a whole country full of neighbors because this is the country that we live in. And if somebody wants to abolish all of that and say, you shouldn't love your country because you should love all of the countries in the world or all of the people of the world equally, I say, it sounds to me like you're trying to take something away from my neighbor. You're trying to take something away from my wife and my children. And as a matter of fact, when we start peeling back the specific proposals that are wedded to this idea of dissolving national loyalties, dissolving national interest, 
dissolving patriotism, the specific proposals just so happen to be taking things away from my neighbors in this country, my extended family in this country, my immediate family, my household in this country. I don't trust the people who want to take those things away from my neighbors and my family and myself. I don't trust them. They say they have good intentions. I don't believe them. Lots of people can say that, but the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Wisdom is known by her children. I see a lot of folly and a lot of corruption, and I see a lot of conflicting loyalties on the part of those people who want us to defer to them in everything. And I think this is all the more reason to bring politics back to your local community and for us to be doing the Ecclesia Forum. Love of nation with a country as big and wealthy and powerful as the United States is, that's a very abstract thing. And very controversial in part because so many people have devoted so much time and attention to trying to get you to think the worst only ever about the United States of America because they want to plunder the United States, because they want to break up the United States, or they want to take control over it and have their way with it. They want to burn it all down so that they can build whatever is in their imagination, whatever pleases them in the ruins, in the ashes. I say a good antidote would be to call people to love Greeley if they live in Greeley. Why? Not because you love Greeley in an abstract way, but because you love the people who live in Greeley. If you live in Greeley, then your neighbor lives in Greeley. If you live in Greeley, then probably your church, the people who go to your church, you don't love the church in an abstract way. You love the people you go to church and see. Specifically, you love that brother in Christ and his family. You love his children and you care about how he's able to provide for and protect them. You care about his being able to shepherd them well. You enjoy your family being around their family, specifically individual members of their family, but also that's part of what it would mean to love the city of Greeley. And if you can think a little bigger picture than that and expand your imagination and wrap your mind around it, you might say, hey, I love Colorado. I have a lot of things that are really worrying me. A little a little concerning <laughs> for me is the trajectory of the culture and the economy and the political situation here in Colorado. But I love Colorado. I love the people of Colorado. I love the scenery. I love the things that there are to do and to have and to be here in Colorado. I'm concerned and I want to be protective of, and I want to provide for the people of Colorado. That's what I mean when I say I love the state of Colorado. That's what most people mean when they say that they love the state that they have moved to or they've grown up in. They don't necessarily mean that they love every last little thing that's been, that's been the official capacity of the government or people who've been serving in office. That, that's not what they mean, right? That's not what we mean. What we mean is we love our story here. We love that we're part of a story here. We love that our family lives here. We love that we live with our family here. We love our neighbors here. We love that we get to live in community with our neighbors here and figure things out together and learn from each other and work together and rest together. My friend, Luke Bergman, is a cop here in Greeley. He's a cop with the Greeley Police Department. And he just turned 
39, I believe it was, the day before yesterday. And Luke and his lovely wife, Kate, invited me and my lovely wife, Lauren, and our friends, Travis and Laura Polk and Taylor and Hannah Cross and John and Megan McNearney. John wasn't able to make it. He was out hunting with his sons, but Megan was able to make it. We got together last night at the Bergman residence and had some kebabs and potatoes and a beer and a little bit of whiskey. Not too much. We had a bonfire and some of us had s'mores and I hear they were delicious. We sat around the fire and enjoyed one another's company and talked about our families and talked about work a little bit. If I were to say that I love Greeley, I would mean that I love that because we moved to Greeley, Lauren and I were able to sit down around a bonfire last night and enjoy kebabs and potatoes and a little bit of beer, a little bit of whiskey, smoking my pipe, enjoying the cool night air, That's a little bit of what I would mean. That's a little bit of what it would be shorthand for if I said I love Greeley. And I want Greeley to be a city that does well. I want Greeley to be prosperous and to be a safe community for the Bergman's children and the Polk's children and the McNearney children and for the Cross children and for the Mullet children. Otherwise, it is just an abstraction. It is academic. It is just a will to power for us to make any kind of a truth claim. But then if I have a vested interest in my family being provided for and safe and the families of my friends being provided for and safe, and if I can help them, well, then I should probably talk with them. I should probably find out what their needs are. We should probably compare notes. We should probably brainstorm together. And you know what? Pretty soon you do that with your neighbors And you figure out how the ecclesia came about in the first place. In the ancient Greek city-states, the ecclesia was the gathering of the men of voting age of the city-state to discuss the business of the city. And that's all it was. We're going to discuss what decisions we should make together to provide for the common welfare, the common good of our families, ourselves, our friends, our neighbors, our city. That's what it means that we would have a city. And if you scale that up, and now you have the modern state, and within a country, there are territories. And those help to make certain decisions more local and more accountable and more finely tuned to the particular advantages and vulnerabilities, opportunities and weaknesses of a place and a people. This is also where you have some sense of liberty, and rights as we think of them. Because if you don't have localities, if everything belongs to everybody, then nothing belongs to anybody. If everyone belongs to everybody, then nobody actually has any ties to anybody. And it's all just a free-for-all. The atomized individual at a certain point is just lonely people in a dog-eat-dog world where if you're not the dog that does the eating, you're the dog that gets eaten. So this is part of why families need to be in community together and why heads of households need to, in particular, meet together with other heads of households, fathers in particular, husbands in particular. This has been a man's job, not because it was like, oh, hey, how can we oppress them women? 
How can we keep them barefoot and pregnant? I know. We'll exclude them from the forum. No, 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 no. What it was, was that men having the greater capacity to actually do the providing and the protecting if their wife was pregnant or home taking care of the kids, like my wife will be home tonight taking care of the younger children while me and the four older boys go to the forum. It was not to keep her from being able to do what she needed to do. It was to allow the wife and the mother to do what she needed to do that the man, the husband, the father, the head of the household would meet with other husbands, fathers, heads of household. Hey, we'll go take care of it. You stay here, do what you need to do here, honey. We men will sort this out. An enemy has invaded and they want to burn down our city and kill me and steal you and make our children into slaves, me and the other men. We're going to go sort this out. We're going to go talk to them. Our talking may involve (laughs) violence, actually. There will be some talking and if they will listen and just go away, that is fine and I'll be back tomorrow. And if not, it might be a minute. It might be a week or two of talks. But then when it's the men who may go off and fight an enemy, it's also the men who have the most interest in making sure that the provisions are in order. And if we're going to collect our resources, pool our resources, and be sure that we have the resources that we need to be able to maintain a war effort, to sustain a war effort, to field an army, to defend our territory, well then, if it's the men who need to sort that out, and it's also the men who are probably going to be most of the fighters or all of the fighters historically, up until very recently, where now we want the women to, yes, please, please. No, 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 no. Terrible idea. Protect the women. You send the women off to fight and they become rough, hard, like men. You've just taken away one of the primary reasons why men are willing to fight and die to preserve a way of life. You've just destroyed the whole basis for a man being willing to fight. Maybe that was the idea. Maybe that was the whole point. But then you have to figure out how to reason together. Who do I talk with to make sure that this thing that threatens my way of life, my family's way of life, does not happen? How do I get this overturned? How do we do a better thing to make sure we keep the lights on, keep the pantry and the refrigerator stocked? Who do I talk with to make sure we've got clean drinking water? clean water to wash ourselves with. You want those people to be your neighbors in your town, in your county, in your state. The farther afield those people are, the less accountable and the more sorely tempted they are. And that's the truth of it. If they're not already tempted, when they first take up the power, they become very sorely tempted. The farther away from accountability they get and the more power they have, absent accountability. And this is why in the United States, we have three branches that are co-equal and distinct. This is why the ability to write the laws was separated out from the people who enforce the laws and the people who interpret the laws. Because if it's all one person, well, then they become judge, jury, and executioner, and they can just go after whoever has what they want, what they covet, what they envy, And that's the way of despots. That's the way of tyrants. That's the way of totalitarians and mobsters and thugs and oppressive pagans who lord it over those they have authority over. That is not how 
the saints are to be, nor are the saints to be silent in the face of that. We, as Christians, are the people who invite our neighbors, our countrymen, to participate in the blessings of God by grace through faith, but not faith apart from works. Because the faith that is not dead faith will be lived out, demonstrable, observable, tangible in many ways. Returning to Carson Holloway's public discourse piece, though, he writes, in conclusion, moreover, Trumpian patriotism is politically effective not only because it speaks directly to the simple and untutored love of country that any ordinary person feels, but also because it addresses the vital link between the nation's well-being and the self-interest of individual citizens. Thus, Trump denounces certain trade practices, for example, as not only bad for the country, but also as contrary to the economic interests of the working and middle-class voters whose votes he sought and won. This is, to be sure, not the lofty, principled politics of, say, Lincoln's effort to preserve respect for the equality of rights promised by the Declaration of Independence, but neither is there anything illegitimate about it by realistic political standards. On the contrary, the American founders themselves recognized and taught openly that most ordinary political activity is animated by self-interest. Thus, when Trump appeals so directly to the economic interests of those whose support he courts, he is only doing what the founders expected that politicians would do as a matter of course. Accordingly, we can say not only that Hayward's principled patriotism provides a useful corrective to Trump's emotive and interest-based nationalism, but also that Trump's nationalism provides a useful corrective to a patriotism based only on philosophic principle. They are mutually correcting and mutually supportive. On the one hand, a patriotism that is based only on the principles of the founding cannot succeed in winning elections because voters rightly demand that any political movement that seeks their support have some plausible plan to address their ordinary interests. On the other hand, a patriotism that is based only on the untutored loves and interests of ordinary voters cannot preserve our precious inheritance of a regime based on natural rights, the rule of law, and self-government. A movement that acknowledges each of these concerns amounts to the kind of patriotism and the kind of conservatism that can both win elections and deserve to win them. Carson Holloway, by the way, is a Washington fellow in the Claremont Institute's Center for the American Way of Life. He is co-editor of the political writings of Alexander Hamilton, Cambridge University Press. Now, why I bring this out in this context is because this is a very Christianized idea. It's very self-evidently true, but it's also very much supported by what we find in the biblical text. If we say we love Christ and we don't keep his commandments, then we're liars. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. So also, James writes, show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead. So also, principles, apart from some practical aspect, are no principles at all. They're just a pretending at principles. They're virtue signaling, which is not particularly virtuous. All the writings of Machiavelli and Alinsky, saying that you should pretend at virtue to get a free hand, to do what you will behind the scenes to get power are perfectly summarized by Michel Foucault. But that is not the way that everyone has to be. In fact, we know that because God tells us to not be that way. On the one hand, we have a paradox because God says, 
Thou shalt, thou shalt not. And if we endeavor to do that as if we save ourselves by obeying the law, we're fools. On the other hand, if we pay no regard at all and we say grace, grace, he gives more grace, and that's all, right? No obedience, no remorse, no contrition, no repentance, no confession. That's lawlessness. And Jesus says on the last day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, and he will tell them, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And so you can go the opposite direction and it's just as bad as if you went down the legalism path. I think you find an expression of this or a variation on this in the debate about what America will be moving forward, what kind of conservatism will we have, really depends on what we think brought us to this point. Why were we blessed? Were we blessed because we had the best principles, but we didn't act on them? No, we weren't blessed for that reason, but we've gotten into the trouble that we've gotten in because a lot of people thought they could be principled without at all practicing what they preach. And on the flip side, you have a lot of people who say, hey, I don't need your lofty principles. Nah, 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 nah. We don't need principles. We just need to do what works. Just do what works because that's my principle. Well, wait a second. That's the other half of the coin for how we got into the mess that we're in right now. Really, this is not a new thing under the sun. This is a very old problem. There is no new thing under the sun, as Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes. These are very unoriginal problems, and we would know that if we studied our Bibles more and if we studied history more, and we would tell one another that if we were more honest and if we loved one another better. If we loved our neighbor as we love ourselves, if we loved our wives as Christ loved the church, because heaven knows Christ told the church the truth and set the church free by telling the church the truth. If we are children of God and then If we love our children, we should love our children like God loves his children by giving them the truth. We should give our children the truth and make sure that our children have the truth and not hand them over to oppressors and be faithless to the wife of our youth and be negligent, saying, be warmed and filled to our brother who is in need and is hurtling towards oblivion economically. If you see your brother already without home, food, clothing, and you say, be warmed and filled, I'll pray for you. You get a rebuke in the New Testament. If you see that your brother is being taken advantage of, is being manipulated, he's simple-minded, he's naive, as Proverbs would say, he is the simple. If you say, I'll pray for you, how is that so much better? How is that any more pious, any more faithful, any more obedient than when he's already in the circumstance to which he is headed by the machinations of corrupt, wicked men, the simple answer is it's not. Now, if you try to reason with him and he won't listen, then, hey, you did all you could, but you at least need to do that much. You at least need to reason with him. And we need to set the example as Christians. If we set the example of having principles, but we do not practice what we preach, then we should not be surprised that the salt has lost its savor and is good for nothing except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. If we say we have practice, but we have no principles that we will share with you anyway, we don't want to attest to them, we don't want to admit them, we don't want to explain them, we don't want to defend them, we don't want them to be contagious, then we are like 
somebody who lights a lamp and hides it under a bushel. What was the point of lighting that lamp in the first place? Nobody does that, right? That's a good way to put out a lamp. Instead, what you do is you hold the lamp high and it illuminates. And those who love darkness will hate you for it. Yes, they will. But beloved, don't avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. And oh, by the way, that's part of the role of the governing authority when properly constituted and guided by a true understanding of what is good and evil, it's entirely legitimate for the governing authority to restrain evil in the form of those whose deeds are dark, who would try to destroy you when you light a lamp and hold it high. Now, what do you do if some of those who love darkness, they love to do the deeds that are most conveniently done in the dark, what happens if they purport to be your new authorities? You're going to have to grapple with what your principles are and not just what's pragmatic. And you're, ha- you're going to have to put your principles into action and not just say they're abstract ideas or else you are complicit. You are helping to make this the reality that everyone around you lives under. Interestingly, going back to Judges for just a moment, and then I've got to wrap up and move on with the day. Going back to the book of Judges, when the people cry out, consider that God does not save them except by raising up a judge. God uses human agents, flawed as we will find Samson is. He's a very flawed person. God uses flawed human agents to do his will, to do his purpose in delivering his people from oppressors. Therefore, it is nonsense. It is silly. It is foolish. It is naive and not biblical to say, leave that to God insofar as any doing of justice, any speaking of truth, any calling for repentance, leave it to the Holy Spirit. Well, wait, 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 wait. Does the Holy Spirit not reside in you and me? And what are you implying about whether the Holy Spirit would be the one leading me to say what I'm saying right now? Hmm? Search the scriptures. Be a Berean about this. How often do we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon so-and-so, this or that person, and they did what it is that God wanted them to do, or they said what God wanted them to say, and this accomplished the purposes of God? Very often. The answer is very often. So in closing, in conclusion, for now, your role in the grand scheme of things may not be that people will remember your name. Nobody that I know of anyways, I'm sure God knows, but nobody that I know of knows what Samson's mother's name was, and it doesn't matter. It's fine, right? It's okay. If nobody knows your name, if nobody knows my name, it's fine. What's important is that we would be faithful. God knows who are his. If I had to choose between God knowing who I am and coming to me and saying, I want you to do this thing, this thing is going to happen and you're going to be a part of it. And here's what I expect of you. Do this, don't do that. Your son is going to deliver this people from their oppressors. Choose that on the one hand or on the other hand, people will remember my name. You know what I'd pick? I'd, I'd, I would go with the first. I would go with the first, especially when we're talking four decades, 40 years. And oh, by the way, however old this unnamed mother of Samson is, she's almost certainly younger than 40. 36 is advanced maternal age, according to the modern medical literature. So we're talking her entire life, quite probably her husband Manoah's as well, under Philistine occupation. So you mean to tell me 
Nobody's going to know my name. Yes, that's right. But I'm going to give birth to a son who is going to deliver this people from the Philistines. Is that is that right? Am I hearing that right? Yes, that's right. And oh, by the way, too, think about this. She's being told this. He's not going. He's not going to be a baby. You know, toddling around. We're not talking two or three years. Like two or three years from now, he's going to deliver Israel from the Philistines. No, twenty, maybe thirty years from now, he will deliver this people from the Philistines. But now you have hope. Hmm? Not hope that people will remember your name necessarily, but you have hope of a deliverer. Some food for thought, certainly. But like I said, I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.